you normally wouldn't look back to late 1970s network efforts for significant moments in television history, particularly with a subject as serious as the Holocaust. But our special guest, historian Dr. Craig Coonan, will show us that's not always the case. An engaging conversation about the late 1970s miniseries, The Holocaust. Today on Inside the Box. The Fuhrer said, here I stand with my bayonets. There you stand with your law. We'll see which prevails. Holocaust, Gerald Green's best-selling novel, an epic drama, a story of terror and murder, of love and triumph. Sunday at 8, 7 Central on NBC. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Box. I'm Steve Voorhees, joined today by my podcasting partner, Jonathan Bullinger. And today, we're going to be discussing the 1978 miniseries, Holocaust, which aired on NBC. This series marks a significant moment for how the Holocaust was not only viewed in this country, but worldwide. It generated a lot of discussion, both positive and highly critical. And that is something that we really look forward to discussing today with our interviewee, Dr. Craig Coonan, who's a historian. He's also the former director of the Holocaust Center in Mercer County, New Jersey. Jonathan, any thoughts before we get to our conversation with Craig? Well, I mean, as we'll get into this long conversation, good conversation, uh, I won't go on and on about this, but unfortunately at the time and and afterwards, uh, you know, Roots, Roots was the one that sort of got all the attention, all the play. And it was only years later did we start to really understand the, the positive effects that this miniseries had on our understanding of of the Holocaust and that uh, the Jewish experience uh, during World War II. So I, I think we both like talking about this. I think we're both fascinated by it. But honestly, we got a lot of time. I felt a little bad keeping Craig as long as we did, but we had such a good conversation. So I think we'll just get right into it because it's fascinating to learn about this this particular TV moment, a little context about how we got there, and then, as I was mentioning before, sort of the effects of, of, of what 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 it led to, really. So it should go without saying, uh, you know, it's occasionally some heavy-duty uh, topics because, of course, the Holocaust was a heavy-duty topic. Uh, I don't know if we have too many kitties listening, but obviously if you happen to listen in the car with some younger ones, just uh, be careful a little bit about that. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'd like to welcome and introduce Dr. Craig Coonan. He is the former director of the Mercer County Holocaust Genocide and Human Rights Center in New Jersey. He has traveled to Poland a half a dozen times to study and conduct research about the Holocaust. He's also led four study abroad trips there with students and has completed two week-long seminars at Auschwitz, Birkenau, State Museum and Memorial. Uh, he is a historian, and we're really lucky to have him here today for this conversation about this miniseries. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. 
So this mini-series, I just want to give some background on it before we jump into the discussion about it. And I, I do want to thank Craig for pitching this idea to me uh, because I was not familiar with this series. I had read about it, but had never actually watched it. And so uh, very grateful for this opportunity to be able to discuss this and having had the experience of watching it. This aired on NBC April 16th through the 19th. It was four nights in 1978. And the title is Holocaust, the story of the family Weiss. It also aired in West Germany uh, in January of 1979, almost a half a year later. It's estimated that 120 million people watched some or all of this series when it originally aired, which is second only to Roots, uh, which aired on ABC Network in 1977, had 130 million people. And it totaled, when it was all said and done, 222 million people watched in 50 different countries. So a uh, very big deal for NBC to be airing this uh, and got a lot of attention. Reports average about a 50 share. So one out of every two television sets that were turned on were tuned into this. The writer of the series is Gerald Green. He would later adapt this story into print form in, in a book. And Marvin Chomsky directed it. He also directed Roots earlier for ABC. And you may see his name in credits. Uh, he directed multiple episodes of The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, Hawaii Five-0, and Gunsmoke. The series was nominated for 18 Emmys, winning eight of them. And uh, only Roots had one more win with nine Emmys uh, when it was all said and done. And it was filmed on location in Austria and West Berlin. James Woods is one of the actors in this, along with Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep wins an Emmy. Michael Moriarty, from you may know him from Law and Order, uh, he played a Nazi soldier uh, and part of the administration in this in this movie. He wins an Emmy as well. But before we jump into this, I do think it's important to contextualize what's going on in 1978 when this airs. What was the knowledge of the American people going into this? I think what's interesting here is these days, for the younger listeners, the idea of talking about such touchy uh, uh, political topics, whether it's historical or not, doesn't seem quite as jarring. But as we'll talk about, it's it's late 70s, 1978, and so you're in that network era. And so it is interesting. It's really uh, fantastic, actually, that, that Root, something like Roots and, and Holocaust were, were broadcast. But what I'm interested in, what I really want to kind of uh, have Craig provide us here or, or you know, to tell uh, uh, what he knows of this story is so at 78, the war ends in 45. So you have this second half of the 40s, you have the 50s, you have the 60s, you have most of the 70s. And that, you know, what, what do we got there? 33 years uh, after a war that is often thought of as far as like bullets and tanks and troops and, and, and terrible battlefield atrocities, but World War II is as much an information war as anything uh, physical. So, Craig, could you kind of walk us through a little bit some of the context of what did Americans know about Holocaust uh, you know, immediately after the war and then whether that changed or not as we kind of the years went on? Uh, what are some of the, what did they know and sort of what are the, the big sort of media points uh, for them that would maybe give them context for 78, although if they were younger, maybe not so much? Thanks, Jonathan. Right. Uh, during during the war itself, uh, 
you know, there was a lot known about what was happening, more than, you know, we'd like to admit today, but many folks would uh, not listen, couldn't believe what was happening to um, the Jews and other uh, other groups during the, what would become known as the Holocaust. Um, when the United States uh, invaded after D-Day and by early 45, liberated a number of camps, um, the Russians doing it in the, from the east with Maidanek and eventually in January of 45, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, it was disbelief, I think. You know, they'd heard these things. There were articles in the New York Times during the middle 40s about what was happening, but they were not on page one. They were on page 40. Um, and people couldn't believe it. This was real. You know, people, Eisenhower was so um, taken aback by this that Eisenhower ordered everything must be documented, videotape everything, uh, because people won't believe this if we don't see it. So they videotaped it. They had the cameras out and rolling. And if you go to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. today, you'll see the, the footage from Eisenhower's men taking video of, of the liberation of the camps and, and the people who were in the camps who were being liberated, who were half dead at the time. And, um, you know, if we, don't, if we don't record it, they won't believe it. And that was 44, 45. And um, I think when the war ended, there was such jubilation um, for VE Day and VJ Day. And people forgot about, you know, all the tough times. People came home. They had babies. They had families. The, the victims of the Holocaust, many of whom uh, had perished, uh, were, um, were remembered. But I guess, you know, many survivors who went to relocation, um, to, um, relocation camps and would end up either in the United States or in Israel eventually. Um, they, they came to this country and they wanted to move on with their life. They, you know, they tried to put the, the trauma behind them. And I don't think many folks even want to hear about it as well. Many people were quiet. And uh, I've got a lot of friends who, um, who were second generation. I met a, I have a one friend who is a Holocaust survivor still, who's 92 years old. And uh, you know, she was in Czechoslovakia uh, during the war and went to Hungary and was liberated in 45 by the, by the Soviet army. Uh, you know, at first they didn't talk about it. You know, the woman I know, Vera Goodkin, who is um, down in Mercer County, New Jersey, uh, she didn't talk about being a Holocaust survivor until the 1980s because, you know, she didn't want to talk about it. Nobody cared. She raised a family. She moved on with her life. And same thing with a number of other folks. Um, Steve Besserman, a good friend of mine, who is a son of two Holocaust survivors, said when, you know, his mother had a tattoo on her arm and she'd often be asked, you know, by kids who went to their store, what's that tattoo on your arm? And she would say, oh, it's just something I have. She would just downplay it and not get into a conversation. So many Americans didn't really want to hear about it. And I think the first time it really hit uh, at a high level of, of you know, television, movies, pop culture, uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. You know, the Diary of Anne Frank was the, was something that was a uh, a play, a Broadway play at first, a book first, obviously, and then a play, and then a movie in the late 1950s, um, and that really brought uh, what had happened. You know, a word that they hadn't heard before. Maybe they maybe Holocaust was something that you know wasn't always used at the time either. And I don't think the word Holocaust became ingrained in in national psyche until really after this miniseries um in 1979 in in germany in 1979 in germany the word holocaust was the word of the year in germany you know because it was the first time so it's 30 years before you start calling it this name although it's around in academic circles before that it's not around in pop culture at all in this in the 50s or 60s um so you have and frank 
you have Adolf Eichmann being seized in in Argentina and being taken back to Israel and being put on trial, and a lot of that was being televised back in the early 1960s. You have a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg, which was uh, came out in 61 or 2, I believe. Um, you don't have much much discussion of that. And, and something that Steve and I mentioned uh, a while back about um, the only real interest that you would have with Nazis, and not even the Holocaust, but Nazis at the time uh, in the 60s on television was Hogan's Heroes. And Hogan's Heroes was not about the Holocaust or not about persecution of Nazi, a uh, persecution of Jews. It was about uh, a Stalag that was um, uh, for airmen and the Nazis were imbeciles and easily fooled and couldn't see right in front of their face what was happening. Um, you know, it was, it was comedic and it sort of took the edge off what it was to be a Nazi, strangely enough. It was not controversial. Uh, as much as it should have been, I think, at the time. And today, of course, they couldn't make a uh, program like that. But that was probably the most association that a white American audience had had with the Nazis on television since, you know, the war itself. You know, uh, Nazis were bumbling idiots. Nazis were comedic, uh, which is such a, a contrast to the reality of what the Nazis actually were. And throughout the 70s, um, there were very, very few people interested in Holocaust studies, even at colleges. In 1973, there were only two American colleges that even had a Holocaust class that they offered. So it was something that was on the fringe of academia. It was on the very fringe of pop culture, and very few people wanted to talk about it. And I think this is where um, you start seeing a change, perhaps, not because of this, but you start seeing a change before this, because the survivors were getting older. The survivors were getting to be um, uh, more organized, maybe a, a different stage in life. Their children were now full grown. They're moving out and people want to start talking about what happened during the war. Um, you have survivors in the 1970s. Survivors could be anywhere from 40 years old to you name it, 90 at the time because they were, you know, a little bit more on. So you, 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 have, um, you have a general acceptance. The 70s also were a time when people talk about you know, if not just with the with Jews and Nazis, but you start seeing Armenian survivors of the Armenian genocide talking in the 70s as well, because it's a time when people felt more free to talk about situations because of perhaps the civil rights movement, the women's rights movements, the gay rights movements, the American Indian movement, other movements that were happening in the 60s and early 70s. And I think discussing these events were something that was something that was much more frequently done by the middle to late 70s. So this is the climate in which you start seeing we're talking about slavery and, and civil rights more. Here comes roots. You know, well, now we're talking about, you know, World War II and atrocities and this thing that they call the Holocaust that might now be ready to go to a national audience. And this is where we are, I think, when I'm sure NBC executives were sitting in an office somewhere when Roots came out and said, what can we do next? You know, what can, what can be the next splash here that we can get 100 million viewers to watch? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, an excellent summary. And I'm a little rusty on this, but yeah, I think I think it's wild to younger folks today to realize, like you said, like the, the you know, much, uh, you know, the, the word wasn't, there was either wasn't a word or, or it was in such small circles, it just wasn't known, it wasn't said, but we didn't throw around the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide or, or something like that. Yeah, I think some of the words were like you'd find in newspapers immediately after the war, like um, uh, refugees, displaced persons, that sort of thing. Not not there. 
And then, you know, yeah, the Hogan's Heroes thing, the comedy, uh, but, or you would see it within another sort of quote unquote safe environment, which would be like science fiction, you know, so like there might be a couple, I think there's a couple episodes of like Twilight Zone and Lord knows, we were talking offline about a little Star Trek, Lord knows Roddenberry loved to do what ifs with, with Nazism and, and, and whatnot, but not like you're saying, not in that sort of real immediate way. And, and I'll give this back to Steve and we can talk about Holocaust. But I think one thing maybe after we talk Holocaust, interesting, also happening in the 70s, is the first time we start to get the glimpses of personal uh, video recording equipment and what role that will play in the idea of the witness, you know, and, 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 and memories and testimony, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting time. But Steve, do you want to... Uh, Tell us how some crazy corporate network, or at least get us started on some crazy corporate network in the late 70s that said, let's do this. So in terms of network decision-making, they aired in April and Passover, Easter in that same month. So Craig, is it true that the network executives are timing this out for the religious holiday purposes, I guess, of, of reaching the audience with this particular topic? I, I believe it might have been Passover Easter week. That way, you know, it was a very sort of a meaningful religious week for both Christians and Jews. So that might have been why they went in April. So, so completely not looking for ratings, but looking for, you know, a captive, more captive audience at a pertinent time. So Craig, the hiring of Marvin Chomsky, director of Roots, I, I mean, it's clear that there's parallels here and connections with what NBC's trying to do. How much of it, especially your expertise as a historian, does this come across as a genuine educational moment as much as you can have one with a docudrama uh, where there's going to be creative liberties? Or is this just a ratings grab to say, hey, Roots got 130 million. Well, let's see if we can if we can top that. Where, where, where do you where do you feel the network is at this point? Clearly, it's a way to get ratings, you know. But, but I'd hope it's both. I hope it's both. I hope it is. I we need. We, this is going to be the next Roots. Roots did something that was very positive. It wasn't just about ratings either. It was let's do something that's meaningful and catches American imagination and gets a large audience and makes you know a name for ourselves, gets Emmy nominations and wins Emmys and all that. So yeah, I, I hope it's both. Um, Roots took Alex Haley's book, which was a very good book. And even Roots, when they produced Roots and made Roots and televised Roots, it was criticized. It was criticized quite a bit, you know. Um, and that's where I think you have to be careful, you know. Why, how quickly are you going to jump into this? What are you going to use as a, the teleplay, um, the, the script to do this? Um, and what it, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because that's sort of a, a later discussion we're going to have is, you know, how accurate does it have to be before it becomes a soap opera? Um, but it has to be accurate enough to be meaningful, but, you know, how much can be melodrama and how much can be real and where do you, you know, um, that's something that I think that this struggles with a lot is, you know, we put something up pretty quickly based on a teleplay by a guy who tries to do the entire Holocaust in four episodes and have this remarkable family everywhere in the Holocaust doing everything. And a lot of it's very untrue, but it's, it's true. It's a seed of truth in a, in a lot of untruth, you know, in this, in this. So it's, it's difficult for somebody who is a, 
a historian, a survivor especially, to look at this docu, this melodrama, the series, and say, that's how it happened. You know, but it's it's so important that it brings it to light for 120 million people who've never seen it before, 30 million Germans who need to deal with their their own past, which happened in, in the next year. So it's important and, and meaningful and popular and terrible and, and wrong and all these things at the same time. And that's the, that's, that's the struggle with this miniseries. So we talk a lot about maintaining audiences. And when you break up a miniseries, this isn't streaming where the next episode on Netflix is going to play. You're looking at between seven and nine hours, depending if there's commercial. We're going to talk about the commercial we'll breaks. Commercials, but, right, right. Right. But even without commercials, it's over seven hours long. It's broken up over four nights. And this is really pre-VCR. I mean, I know the Betamax player is out at this point, but not many people have it. So it's appointment viewing. And the challenge that you have with the miniseries is getting the audience to come back the next night and then come back the next night. And I can see the network struggling with the writing of this to say, you know, we got to take, we got to have some soap opera-esque plot lines, uh, some love story. We, we have to work these in because we got to leave enough of a cliffhanger just to get the audience to come back again. And, you know, and, and so I imagine that would be a struggle and that, and that also leads to criticism, right? If, if you don't have the audience coming back, then no one's watching. And if you do have the audience coming back, you're probably taking some creative liberties that, you know, are going to put untruths into this. And that's sort of how I see the struggle, at least behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, again, you know, you're looking at the way, I don't know how much you want to go through the episodes or anything else, but there's a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, all right, let's bring us to a point where high drama and, you know, there's going to be a, a, a battle, there's going to be a, a, a sexual violence against somebody here. Um, there's going to be a number of things which, you know, these things all happened, but how they happened and where they happened and, you know, it sometimes gets to the absurd level, you know, where, you know, that's, it's like, oh, okay, um, I am in Auschwitz and I've got pictures of my family hanging up and I've got my music and I've got my personal belongings. And it's like, um, there's a, yeah, you know, there's a, you know, it's, it, it, it was called one person who reviewed it said it was very kitschy, you know, it's like, um, no one looked that good in the camps, you know, no one looked that good. No one had those kind of personal belongings. And it's, it's like, what do you, again, I realize it's, it, I don't want to keep harping on the same point, so I won't. Um, but how much is too much camp and kitsch and how much is, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line? And that's where, um, you get, you said, you have to draw in an audience you have to keep an audience, but do you do that with the Holocaust? You know, this is something that I think we learned later. You can't, you can't sacrifice, you know, the truth for an audience with the Holocaust, but we're learning this, I think from this docu, this mini series, um, because later television broadcasts of the Holocaust, uh, which are very few, are much more serious and much more tied to a truth or a story that is more truthful than this one was. And yeah, I mean, this is this is a really interesting point, not quite, you know, TV specific, but that idea of, as you mentioned, it really wasn't a national dialogue before this attempt. And so as anything that's done first, you don't expect it to be imperfect. Uh, don't expect it to be perfect rather, but you know, it, it's really difficult because on one side, you just want to say, so long as it got it out there, 
that's fine as a first attempt, but that's a very slippery slope to go down. Right. Uh, uh, Tova, Tova Feldshu, who played the character Helena, Helena Slamova, who is, again, the wife of, of Rudy, a partisan. Uh, if you watch it, you know what I'm talking, who I'm talking about. Tova um, is Jewish, uh, and uh, she met in 1970, just after it came out, she met um, um, Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel, a very famous author, uh, wrote the book Night. Uh, Holocaust survivor himself was instrumental in the creation of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, and he was an outspoken critic of this miniseries. And, and Tova met Ellie after it came out, and he said to her, how could you, how could you, how could you, the Holocaust, how, how could you reduce the Holocaust to a soap opera? To Tova, uh, who was the actress. And she said, uh, not to him at the time, but she thought about it, and she said in, in a publication, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency publication many years later, uh, we made it not for survivors, uh, we made it to help people realize that it happened, help introduce people to it, you know, and that's what she said 30 years after it, it, it came out in response to Ellie uh, Wiesel's comment of 30 years earlier, you know, he was appalled and he survived. He was at Auschwitz. Every time he saw a clip at Auschwitz-Birkenau, he would probably cringe. He would, he would be angry because people didn't have pictures because, you know, this is, I couldn't go see my, my wife or my mother or my whomever else, you know, at the time. Um, there is a place called Birkenau with none of the, none of this happened at Auschwitz in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, um, mini series. It was all at Birkenau, which is a neighboring camp right next to it. And, um, there was no differentiation made at all during the uh, mini series. That's what he's thinking. But for Tova, the other actors, perhaps NBC executives and so forth, we want to have ratings, but we also want to introduce folks to what happened and get people, like you said, Jonathan, talking about it for the first time in 33 years. Yeah, and and sort of an interesting side note for folks who are new to this topic, uh, his, um, how should I say it, his influence on getting people to think about and talk about the Holocaust. And it was a lifelong crusade because obviously when you go through a hell like that, it's, it's terrible. It was so strong that actually toward the end of his, of, uh, uh, of his life, he himself would actually sort of get critics where they were like, your influence is so strong on this that sometimes it feels like quote, what we now call the quote unquote, the Holocaust is his version of the Holocaust. I mean, that's just so how profound he was such a, a tireless worker of, of kind of talking about that experience. On April 16th, 1978, the same day that Holocaust premiered on NBC, Elie Wiesel reviewed the miniseries in the television section of the New York Times. And it was entitled, The Trivializing of the Holocaust. He is very critical of this miniseries. And one of his quotes that stands out to me is he refers to the miniseries as, and I quote, an insult to those who perished and to those who survived. Yeah, that's strong, <laughs> strong, strong words. Right. You know, and, and what, what his, his lifelong understanding of the Holocaust and what he went through and others like him, uh, as Jonathan would say, did get quite a few critics later in his life because he said the Holocaust was an exception. It's an exceptional experience. There is only one Holocaust. Um, there, there are no other Holocausts. There is, there is genocide, there is atrocity, there are human rights violations, but there is no other Holocaust. Um, 
which is which is under there are genocides that saw the death of more people there are genocides that happened because of religion there are genocides that, so it's 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 difficult for some to grasp that it is only one moment in time this is the holocaust it's not a holocaust and that was his take on it and in order to do this you cannot you cannot satirize, you can't satirize it you can't uh, you can't uh, make it a make it a soap opera you can't play with the facts you can't and I, and I think that that is um, that's that's the argument that has a lot of uh, opposition later in his life because you know you look at comparisons between other genocides and the Holocaust and there are many there are many where he would not say that, that you can't do that there was just one Holocaust and it's it's separate um, I think a, a, a different argument you would make about uh, playing loose with the facts is that one bringing rise to awareness is great and that's a positive aspect of what happened because of the miniseries but irregardless of what Wiesel says there is another concern that you have when you make up parts of a story you know the Weiss family did not start the Sobibor uprising. The Weiss family did not start the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Craig, I just want to jump in real quick here, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I think it's probably a good idea if we let our listeners who maybe have not seen the miniseries just know a little bit of background about the characters we're discussing here. The story centers around the Weiss family. Uh, Dr. Joseph Weiss is a medical doctor and his wife, Berta. They have three children, Carl, who marries Inga, uh, who is a German, Inga Helms, at the very beginning of this story. They also have a younger son, Rudy, who becomes a partisan fighter. He marries Helena Slomova later in the story. And they have their youngest daughter, Anna. It's also important to mention that the Weiss family is Jewish and they are residing in Germany. Now, the story focuses also on Eric Dorf, who is a lawyer that joins the Nazis at first because he needs work, but then over the course of the story arc gets more and more evil uh, through the course of events that are portrayed. And Craig, I think it's important to mention that these characters, they're all fictional. Absolutely. The Weiss family was not there at all these places at all these times. And you, you get a, you know, you get a highlights from the Holocaust kind of feel from watching the miniseries. You're going to all the various Bob, hey, we're at Bobby Yar. We're partisans. We're in the ghetto. We're in Kristallnacht. We have the war, the the, the um, Nuremberg laws. We've got the Von C conference. We've got all these things. That if you're in Holocaust studies, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and there are mistakes, and there and there are issues. And what is, it's not about whether or not you should take it seriously. It's what about deniers, Holocaust deniers, and that's something that has come up in the last 30, 40 years as well. And deniers thrive off of inaccuracies of, of things that are made up out of fiction. And today, if you look every, 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 every few weeks or every month or so, I, I'm, I'm on the face on Facebook and I'm surprised um, with the Holocaust, um, um, Auschwitz Memorial, um, in, uh, in Poland, and they'll put up a post in, in the Facebook saying, don't buy this book don't read this book because it is not truthful we, we, we don't want you know the, the boy with the striped um, boy with the striped pajamas the zookeeper's wife those are not truthful movies or they're not truthful books they they they, they play with the facts or loose with the facts 
it gives rise to folks who will deny it. If, if this didn't happen, yeah. well, then what else didn't happen? If you didn't, you know, so that's a, that's a concern that you have with so many inaccuracies in this miniseries. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Craig. Um, it's unfortunate that the, the, the margins for rationality have become so narrow these days that if we invite any sort of slipshot uh, history or however you want to call it, uh, unfortunately, people are going to run with that and it's going to bolster their sort of irrational um, uh, time wasting and, 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 and without, without the sort of old school central uh, clearinghouse or gatekeepers or editors or whatever you want to call it, uh, there's a lot of younger people who just might listen to that garbage and sort of lose the bigger the bigger lesson. But uh, Steve, let's talk about pure rationality, and that's '70s network executives. <laughs> now, well, you know, I am to Jonathan's point curious about how these network executives and the writers and the director, you know, dealt with, geez, such a sensitive graphic violent, uh, historical topic, uh, you know, and how they were able to handle this, not only for the American audience and for a worldwide audience, but also within the guidelines set forth by the FCC and the broadcast rules of the time. There is a lot of violence in this. There is nudity in this. There is just some really graphic images and even um, I want to say graphic imagery that's not seen apparently on the screen, but you're concluding what's happening uh, by the camera angles that are being used away from the action. It's, there's just a lot for audiences to take in in this. Uh, and it's important. You know, it's important to, to display all of this. But still, you're playing within the broadcast rules on the broadcast network. And you know, I was surprised at how much NBC showed. I think I was, when I went and watching this for the first time, I was sort of expecting sort of the warlike approach of a mash where a lot of, a lot of things are not seen, but somewhat discussed. Uh, but this was all very graphic and really plainly laid out for the, for the audience. And that surprised me. It, it, it's it's difficult, you know. You have network television of the '70s, and and they did show male and female nudity, all right, and they did show people being shot. Nothing graphic with shooting. They show people taking cyanide pills and people dying. And um, it was, uh, yeah, clearly this is something that probably wasn't done on network television much, or if at all, before this. Um, uh, but it was not. It was not as horrific as what really was so you take that edge you you see people you see um dr uh dr weiss joseph weiss the, the main character walking to the gas chamber walking from the field where he was working on a road to the gas chamber and he's he's talking about old times with enough with a friend and they just walk away and then the audience is left to assume that this person was went to a gas chamber and died. You do see a scene where they go to the gas chamber and they walk into the gas chamber and you hear some noises, but you don't see what happens. You know, it, it's um, movies have always movies have struggled with that. I think in the last thirty years as well, it's not just television. How much is too much um, graphic violence, graphic portrayals, whatever else? Um, I know when Schindler's List went on television in 1997, one of the biggest concerns of a Oklahoma congressman was how can they show graphic female and male nudity on television like they do? 
And um, 1997, it was Oklahoma Congressman Thomas Cobra. So I'm not sure who it was exactly, but it was a man from Oklahoma um, said that, uh, and he got into a controversy for that. He, he had to apologize in Congress for saying that um, because, uh, well, it's the Holocaust. You know, this is we're trying to show what's real. So even 20 years later, they're concerned about how much on television is too much and how much can we handle. Um, but even Schindler's List is relatively tame when it comes to the graphic reality of the Holocaust. This, this miniseries did also roll in authentic footage as well, though, correct? Right. Uh, and this, this photographs, a lot of photographs were shown of dead bodies, of, of, of mass graves. Uh, there, was, there was some video also of executions of the Einsatzgruppen, uh, which was the SS killing squads that they talk about in episode two. Uh, and then episode three, they, they do it as well. When Dorf goes and observes all these things, they're, they're showing this and saying, it's not clean enough, it's not clean enough. Um, that's very true. So they do show that, which is probably more graphic than you ever saw on, on television at the time. Um, what, an issue with that too, though, would be is they kept talking about, it's not clean enough, it's not clean enough, we need to make it cleaner. Um, you know, yeah, um, which would then lead to the gas vans and the gas chambers and other things coming down the line. It's sort of a way to catch the audience and show them that it's going to be, it's a trend, it's a progression from, this is not the worst of the violence you're going to be seeing. It's going to be even worse for the victims coming down the line. But yeah, um, but again, it's always been a, it's been a challenge, you know, how much is too much to show on television or in a movie? How much will turn a, a, an audience off? And, you know, I think that um, whether it's 1997 or 1978 or 2023, it's, or 2024, you know, it's going to be, um, that, that question's always going to be there. How much is too much violence? There was a movie, movie that came out relatively recently, 10 years ago, eight years ago, called Son of Saul. And Son of Saul is a Hungarian movie and they show people in the gas chambers and they, and they walk them in the gas chambers and you hear it, the pounding and the sounds. And it's, um, you know, people come criticize that movie for being too much, right? Um, but so it's, uh, for 70s television though, it's something that pushed the envelope as much as it probably could. Um, and it still, like you said, softened it to an extent that it wasn't, you know, nearly enough. Yeah. One of the issues within this topic that I think is important to bring up specifically is the portrayal of death and how the network went about, um, showing this and whether or not it perpetuated stereotypes. And what I'm talking about is, you know, showing Jewish people resigned to die, walking to their death silently uh, versus signs of resistance. And, you know, where does this miniseries lie in terms of how they how they portray death on the screen? It's, it's that's controversial uh, from earliest time when people did think and write about the Holocaust and sort of in popular imagination when they before this time the cliche the stereotype that Jews went to death like lambs to slaughter was a negative stereotype and an, an, an unreal stereotype not 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 true stereotype that was propagated and promoted and still exists today in, in many people's minds not in academic minds but in many um, and I think the program shows this to some extent but also shows that they resisted to some extent there was a lot of go-between one of the things that more recent uh writers and schindler's list and um the tv series uprising in the early 2000s and more modern, modern movies is that you know people the, the pianist with uh during roman polanski's movie in the early 2000s as well 
people don't want to believe the truth. We see that in 2023. We see that all through. They don't want to believe that they're going to die. I'm not going to die. It's not going to be me. This is a shower. This is not a, this is not a gas chamber. They tell me it's a shower. It's a shower, you know, and then the gas comes out and they say, oh, damn, you know, um, I'm not going to be selected. I'm going to be the one chosen to work. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. Uh, in the ghettos, I'm not the one dying on the streets. I've got a house or I've got food. I've got a job. I, I got to work. I gotta, I'm going to work in the IG Farben plant in Monovitsa. I'm going to be doing things. I'm not the one who's going to die. Somebody else is the one who's going to die. Um, and yeah, do people go into the gas chambers willingly? Sure. But do they know their gas chambers? They're not sold on it, right? Some people are thinking this can't be, they're not going to gas us. I got to work. You know, common sense would say this is not a good situation. So the cliche of lambs to slaughter, uh, sheep to slaughter didn't happen. It was, I have a shred of hope. And as long as I have a shred of hope that I'm going to survive, I'm not going to fight back because what is fighting back? Fighting back is instant death. I'm going to be shot. I'm going to be murdered right here if I get out of line, but I might survive the shower. I might survive Auschwitz. I might survive Buchenwald or Dachau or, you know, I might survive this other place. I don't know what it is. It's called Treblinka. You know, maybe I'll survive that. Maybe Sobibor. I don't know what this is. It's a new place. There was so little information and the information you had, you didn't believe. Elie Wiesel himself in the, in the book Night um, says that he was in Hungary late in the war, 44. He was a young teenager and there's a guy went to Auschwitz and somehow got back from Auschwitz and made it back. And he told everybody about the trains and he told everybody in, in um, Hungary about um, Auschwitz and what happens at Auschwitz. And all of the folks in the community said, nah, that doesn't happen. And then a few months later, they all were deported to Auschwitz and they thought, See, we're on a train, it's bad, but we're not going to get murdered. And they all got murdered. Many of them got murdered. You know, Elie Wiesel lost his, his mother, his sister. They didn't fight back because they had hope. And I don't think the miniseries shows that hope. You know, they resigned themselves to death. When Dr. Um, Weiss walks to his death, when the, when the women in the women's camp all of a sudden realize, oh, we don't work, we, they all know we're going to be murdered now today. That doesn't happen that way. You know, that doesn't happen that way. They still have a hope that somehow they're going to survive. And even, they, they, you know, it's, it's, so it's difficult. What I do like is the resistance part of it. You know, there were partisans. I like the partisans. They fought back. They didn't accept it. And, and um, the partisans were, you know, risking their life. And it was not quite, you know, again, the creature comforts of the partisans were much less than the, than the miniseries showed. They didn't have as many guns. They didn't have homes. Uh, and so they live in the forests. Uh, but I like the Warsaw Uprising, the Sobibor Uprising, the partisans, all very good sh symbols of uprisings and resistance. But the, the illustration of them going to their death like sheep to slaughter and dignifying, that was reinforcing a stereotype that I, I, I really hoped um, I do, wouldn't have seen there. But... And sadly, it still exists today. Where are we being taken? The Lausing. It's over, Mr. Lowy. You and I have had a long journey, my friend. Berlin, Warsaw, Auschwitz. It wasn't any vacation. No, no vacation. You've been a good friend. Incidentally, you were always one of my best patients. Always paid your bills on time. Mark the what? Why do we still obey them? We're finished anyway. Now to hell with him. Forward! Forward! 
Give me your hand, Dr. White. I feel as nervous as a kid going to school for the first time. Mr. Lloyd, did you ever have your gallbladder looked after? I've been warning you about it for years, since you first came to my office in Berlin. I may have it done in the spring. It's a hell of a way for men to die. Maybe it's just for D-Loss. Yeah. I've been a printer all my life. Look, there's still printer's ink under my fingernails. Well, maybe those pamphlets helped. No, they did. And, and usually, what there, there are two different types of. Uh, usually, you didn't liquidate. I hate to use the terms like that. You didn't liquidate enti an entire barrack of people uh, because they didn't have work. Again, I don't want to get into the what was true, what was not true. Work. There was always enough work to go around. You always needed workers, especially at Auschwitz Birkenau, because they were they, they always needed workers. Um, and Jews are not Jews. They always needed workers. If you were unable to work, that's when you were um, selected for gassing, if you made it through the initial selection. So there was the initial, get off the train, there is a selection. Work, if you could work, you survive. If you can't work, you, 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 you die. Um, with exceptions, of course, if they were, didn't, you know, whatever, whatever. But in most cases, you were selected. Then you would die. Then you would work, and you would work to, you would be worked to death. And many people died working and they lost enormous amounts of weight. They become emaciated. They, they go from, uh, there's a, in, in the Auschwitz Museum uh, in, in Poland, there's a, there's a case in the Hungarian exhibit, there's a case of a woman who came to Auschwitz, 150 pounds, a you know, normal sized woman. And when she was liberated, she weighed like 42 pounds. You know, this is what people became in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, so you work until you can't work any longer. And then they have periodic selections. All right, let's go through this barracks, barracks number 12 or 18 or whatever else today, and see who can still work and who cannot work. And those who can work, you're going to survive. And those who can't work, you're going to be led to the, the bad side. And those people probably knew that they were going to die, but they were so emaciated and so demoralized and on death's doorstep in the first place that how are you going to fight back? What are you going to do? And many of those people probably walked to their death knowing I'm going to die. The people who just come into the camp don't know what the heck's going on. They're arriving to a place nobody knew about, a place called Auschwitz. You know, maybe hearsay here and there who were in, in the Warsaw Ghetto or were in these places. They may have heard of a place, but they didn't know what it was. Auschwitz was not just a death camp. It was a death camp. It was a work camp. It was a transit camp. It, 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 was, all, it was all things at once. Everybody, you know... Um, Going to Auschwitz for different reasons. They had Russians, they had Poles, they had Romani, they had um, all types of people there. So you know, you, it's a, it's a very complex place. Was Auschwitz Birkenau? They had fifty more cam 50, fifty camps made up Auschwitz. Um, you know, again, they simplify things because you have to for four nights and eight hours on television. But um, this was the issue with you know people who went to their death knew it, but they were so down and out they didn't know or they didn't know it and they went there thinking well there's still a chance i'm going to be a be able to live because why would they kill us why would they kill us it doesn't make any sense and then you know they do so that's the problem with that i'm sorry go ahead jonathan no i just i you know this better than than i do but i feel like my interpretation on this is that's what's just that well you said it so perfectly right the 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 
human rationality, the human hope, the human empathy. You just, you could never imagine such brutality, such evil. And, and, and that's, of course, you know, to kind of circle back to where we were talking, right? Like, that's why we need to study and remember and truly understand the Holocaust and the original intention behind this for the miniseries and, and, but whether, you know, but whether it actually gets that across, et cetera, because, and then the other part of course, is that yes, we all have a culture and yes, there are some similarities, but human beings are individuals. And so I'm, you know, again, I'm not, you're the Holocaust expert. I'm not, I assume that one human being who found themselves in that situation, uh, either for whatever reason, they survived. They had the will, luck, whatever, determination. Another one, once they lost 110 pounds or once they succumbed to three illnesses and once or whatever, not that they wanted to die, but I'm sure at one moment of weakness, they wanted release somehow, some way. It's like you're a human being. You're in a the literally a situation you could never have imagined because you're a good person. <laughs> you know, it's, it's anyway... It's, it's, it's just, I mean, I'm (laughs) saying this for everyone who already knows, but it's the brutality of it, the reality of it, that it just drives you insane. But anyway. Right. And, and they they do show a lot of that brutality and reality of it as well. Uh, In fact, Tovo Felshu in her interview, she gave uh, a few years back, said uh, some of the non-Jews who were on set, like Meryl Streep, um, uh, Harris, I forget her first name, uh, Berta, uh, the the mother, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Weiss. Uh, or, were not Jewish, um, and they said they were they're beside themselves. Uh, Tova Felshu said because they couldn't, they were disbelief. Wow, this this is really what's going on. They were in disbelief of what happened because they had no background, they had no family familial knowledge of what had happened or connection to it. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it did have an impact. It was, you know, real, real and traumatic and um, and important because people who saw this for the first time saw it but again it wasn't it does does reinforce some of the stereotypes that we had before and still after that's part one of our conversation with dr craig coonan we had so much to discuss and he had so much great insight into this mini series that we're going to break it into two episodes and continue our conversation in the next episode of inside the box for jonathan bollinger I'm Steve Voorhees. Thank you again for listening. And if you'd like to find us online, you can at tvhistorypod.com. We're also on Patreon, where we hope you will consider subscribing to us and all of the content we've produced with mini-episodes and our entire archive of episodes. Until next time, I'm Steve Voorhees. Thanks for listening. <laughs>